Yes, I know the finger, Goose. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do, okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries. What I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time that I collected comics. Our comic this time around is G.I. Joe Special Missions Number 5, which came out on February 24th, 1987 with a June 1987 cover date and a cover price of a dollar, which means that just like G.I. Joe Number 59, this is the time when the cover price of the comics went up from 75 cents. Interestingly enough, a number of DC comics would stay at 75 cents for a few years after this. Superman was kind of the last holdout and would be up there, mm, I'd say up to a dollar shortly after I started collecting in early 1990. But at this point, they were still retailing for 75 cents. Then again, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think at this point in time, DC had more of a direct market titles than Marvel, and Marvel had still that huge newsstand presence. So whereas DC's book range DC's books ranged from seventy-five cents to about a buck fifty, Marvel didn't have as many titles that had a wide variety of a price range. Yeah, there were definitely titles in the Marvel line that were going for about a buck twenty-five or a buck fifty, but I don't think they had a lot of books printed on Baxter paper or anything like that the way DC had been doing since about nineteen eighty three. Anyway, G.I. Joe Special Missions was a bi-monthly title. It was kind of the solo adventures or Teen Titans spotlight. The stories were more or less self-contained or had some tangential connection to what was going on in the main books, and we'll see that with issue number six of the series. So you can pick this up, read it, and not really be worried about missing the previous issue or having to get the next one. Our cover is by Mike Zek, which shows the Co- Cobra Night Raven, which is an SR-71 Blackbird flying above Ace, who is ejecting from his wrecked Sky Striker, which is an F-14 Tomcat. It depicts a scene in the book and is also pretty dynamic, something that would definitely get your attention when it was on the newsstands back then. Then again, Mike's X covers always were outstanding, and I think, to be honest, the, the covers of this title were one of the one element that everyone remembered, because between Michael Golden doing many of the covers early on and Mike Zek doing a number of the covers around this time, they were pretty unforgettable. Our story is Showdown, and our credits are Larry Hama, writer, Herb Trimpey, artist, Bob Sharon, coloring, Phil Felix, lettering, Bob Harris, editor, and Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. We begin on Cobra Island, where a maintenance crew is doing a final checkup on the Night Raven and complaining about its pilot, Stratoviper. Apparently, he's incredibly arrogant and very unliked among the Cobra maintenance staff. The Stratoviper shows up and lives up to his reputation because... He's kind of a jerk, and then he takes off into the skies to run a surveillance mission over an Air Force base in Florida. In Florida, the Joes attract the Night Raven and prep the Sky Striker and Conquest X-30. 
Ace and Slipstream, the pilots of each of the planes, respectively, say hello to the rescue chopper crew, and then Slipstream gives one of the maintenance guys a gift for his kid, a Transformers toy named Jetfire, because the kid has had a tonsillectomy. He also thanks him for doing some much-needed repairs on the Conquest X-30. They take off and they intercept the Night Raven. Ace pulls a Maverick and inverts his plane to say hello to the Stratoviper, but since this is a Comics Code Authority-approved book, he doesn't flip him the bird, but instead says, Yo, mucus face, eat my dust! This provokes the Stratoviper, and he fires a missile at the Sky Striker, hitting him in the rear, whilst popping a flare in the face of the Conquest, so that Slipstream can't see. Ace ejects safely, while Slipstream goes into a flame-out and a spin. Cobra Island radios the Stratovipers, saying that they have Rattlers ready to escort him back to base, but he tells them to bug off while at the Air Force base, the Tomahawk Chopper gets ready to pick up Ace. Slipstream recovers and goes, then goes after the Night Raven. A dogfight ensues and Stratovipers encounters equipment problems and failure. He radios for help and the rescue crew back on Cobra Island is slow to go. In the end, both Joes are okay with Ace safely having successfully deployed his raft and Slipstream heading back to base with no problems while the Tomahawk crew picks him up. And the Stratoviper, we assume, drowns with his ship in the water, as the rescue crew deliberately takes its time, and one of the maintenance guys from earlier casually throws away the breakout tool that he'd forgotten to leave in the Night Raven's cockpit. When I was younger, I think that this was my favorite issue of G.I. Joe Special Missions. Granted, there wasn't much in the way of actual issues of Special Missions in my collection, because it was bi-monthly. But Top Gun was one of my favorite movies, and, well, this is pretty much Larry Hama taking elements of Top Gun and using them in a comic book plot. And I guess if you were analyzing this for some literary value, the whole juxtaposition of the way that the Cobra and the Joe's pilots treat their crews at the beginning of the issue versus the way that the comic book ends would probably be a little groan-worthy. But I'm going to be completely honest here and say that A, the intended audience for this comic book in 1987 was not seeking any literary value in their G.I. Joe comics. And B, even 30 years later, I still enjoy this comic. I mean, it's actually kind of funny because Hammett is being so incredibly deliberate in the way he's introducing all of the pilots involved in the story. The Stratoviper is a complete jerk, and that means that the ground crew will do barely even the minimum for him, whereas the Joes are really, really nice. I mean, Slipstream buys a Transformer for the guy's kid, although if I'm into picking the way that Trippy draws the figure, it looks more like Megatron than Jetfire, but honestly, who cares because it gets the point across? And when they pass the Tomahawk guys, they say, hey, there's the crew we met at the bar last night. So when they rescue him and make it back to base, Ace says, we made it. The first round of Yo Joe Cola is on me. And while I now know that it's very unlikely that they be drinking soda, I do love the idea that there's quite possibly a Yo Joe Cola brand. Because that would be awesome. And even though they leave the Stratoviper to drown, which is a very cold and cruel thing to do, there's something darkly funny about the way that the maintenance crews and rescue crew for Cobra behaves. I mean, it's such a simple story, and it works really well. And I think that's partially because of the artwork. Herb Trippy was one of the artists on the uh, G.I. Joe and the Transformers comic, which was um, in the first few episodes of this show. And he was also the original pencil on G.I. Joe. And, and this is the reason why I blame Vince Coletta for his subpar artwork on the miniseries because here the art's crisp it's detailed and honestly that's really important with such a straightforward plot the art really needs to sell this book especially because it features jets 
So everything needs to look good or else it's not going to be a very good comic. For instance, on the page where we see Ace getting rescued, we see the tomahawk fly away and then the Night Raven crash into the water. And Trippy gets the Stratovipers panic across really well when he realizes that the breakout bar is not where it's supposed to be. His eyes go wide and he starts pounding on the cockpit while the water piles up. The crash in this moment are four horizontal panels and express it all really well. Then on the next page, we get this great shot of the Tomahawk landing at the Air Force Base, which is a shot from underneath with the ground crew both happy and holding onto their hats, which is the type of shot we've seen in so many movies. It's really realistic. And all throughout the book, Trippy's artwork really shines. He has all of one splash page and then uses panels really effectively, taking a few panels to show certain sequences, such as Ace ejecting from the Sky Striker and Slipstream riding his plane, which, by the way, takes three panels and the sound effect of Varoosh. Going across all three panels and right over the direction of the plane as it slopes toward the water and then begins flying upward again. This is really good. And um, it's a short review because, like I said, it's a simple, tight story that works incredibly well for a solo G.I. Joe adventure. And it ended up being an extra comic to pick up once every couple of months because this was a bi-monthly title for all of its, I think, 24 issues or so, however it ran. I'm actually going to stick with G.I. Joe for my next episode. Uh, Instead of the special missions, though, I'll be going into G.I. Joe number 60, which is the Todd McFarlane issue of G.I. Joe. But for now, I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back. Calabac, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Who's who? The definitive podcast of the DC universe. Available monthly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. You know, a few months ago, I did an episode of Pop Culture Affidavit about Stand By Me. And when I mentioned that I've always loved Top Gun, I think Mike Bailey said something to the extent of needing to do an intervention about that. Now, I don't think I'll ever actually do a full podcast episode about Top Gun because I don't know. I think it's just I, I'm not exactly sure. I, I, it might have been covered or there's other movies I want to do. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about them now, at least in the context of the toys that are featured in this episode. Because I think one of the reasons I love this comic book so much as a kid was because it recalled Top Gun so much. And really also because I actually had all of the toys that were featured. So if I actually wanted to replay this episode, I could. I'm sure I could find a few figures to play the crew or something, but beyond that, all I had to do is put Ace in the Sky Strike, Slipstream in the Conquest, and the Strato Viper in the Night Raven. Alright, so I lost the parachute for the Sky Striker at one point. We took it off of the seat of the plane because I think I actually ejected Ace once, and after I had deployed that parachute, I couldn't get it wrapped up and tied tightly enough to fit back into the cockpit, 
which is totally the case with that toy, by the way. And the Night Raven actually came with the second plane. It was some sort of mini plane that attached to the top of the rear of the plane. But anyone who owned any of these toys back in the 80s know, totally knows how huge they were. So if you were going to dogfight, you would have to put one per, you would have to have one person be the Cobra plane and another be the Sky Striker and then maybe a third person fighting with the Conquest. The Tomahawk Chopper was only needed until the end, so anybody could do that one. Then we'd go for some Yojo Cola or something. I don't know. But the Stratovipers miniplane and the Firebat, uh, which was a small plane that came with the Terrordrome, were small enough for someone to have a dogfight with both plane with both planes. And oh man, I did that all the time. I mean, in fact, I would I had the top sound gun soundtrack on tape. So I put it into my little radio with a cassette player. I don't know if you could call that a boombox because it was smaller, but it pretty much was one of those, you know, one of those things. And I played Danger Zone and then Mighty Wings. That was the cheap trick song that was uh, right on after Danger Zone. And if I was still dogfighting, I'd flip the tape over and I'd find the Top Gun Anthem, which was the, my favorite song on the entire tape. It was the last one on side B. And I played that like all the time. And I know that was basically having a Cobra plane fight a Cobra plane, but honestly, I didn't care. I was having too much fun making those planes bank and roll and fire on one another. Plus, my friends and I spent a lot of time playing Top Gun on the swings at the playground. Like, we'd swing around and then basically talk as if we were Maverick and Iceman fighting against what we call bogeys. Then we'd jump off the swings and when we were shot down. What? We were nine. So, yeah, that's how I... That's how much I loved that movie when I was a kid. Around that time, it was my favorite movie to watch repeatedly, and then it would get replaced by some of the Star Trek films and stuff like Aliens. But, oh, man, Top Gun was just so cool in 1986 and 1987. I mean, so much so that when I started taking piano lessons again around that time, I mean, my cousin Jennifer had taught me for a few years and then stopped. I got a book full of, like, movie themes to play on the piano, and one of my very first ones that I learned how to play was the Top Gun Anthem. And let's talk about this song for a moment. It was written by and recorded by Har- Harold Faltermeyer, uh, who, along with uh, Billy Idol's guitarist Steve Stevens, who agreed to work with Faltermeyer after he saw a clip of the movie and smartly thought it was going to be a huge hit. The song won a Grammy for Best Instrumental Performance of 1986. It actually has a video, which I will put into the show notes. Faltermeyer is, I'd say, probably one of the most 1980s of film score composers. I know that in the pantheon of film score composers, he's probably not even considered because of his body of work, because it doesn't really measure up to a lot of those who usually get a lot of recognition. But let's be honest here. He created two of the most recognizable film score pieces from the entire decade. This, and Axel F. from Beverly Hills Cop. And I think that the two major reasons he's pushed aside in favor of a number of other composers are that he worked with mostly synthesizers, whereas most of the oft-celebrated composers would work with full orchestras. And he retired in the early 1990s to return to Germany and raise his kids, returning in 2009 to score Kevin Smith's film Cop Out. So his output is also not as extensive. It's contained within the time that his music really suits. But his output during this time is pretty impressive, and while whomever wrote part of his Wikipedia page says that he influenced Hans Zimmer, I'd say that his more direct influence can be found in a number of the action films from the late 80s and early 90s that relied heavily on synth-based scores, so much that synthesizers are exactly what I associate with that entire genre. 
And the Top Gun anthem is so much more than just synthesizers and guitars. The way it soars through its climax, you literally get the feeling of taking off in a plane or a jet and flying through the air. I mean, like, I can kind of... It's not part of Soarin' at Epcot, but it would be pretty cool if it was part of Soarin' at Epcot. I'm half kidding about that. But really, while I'm not a film score expert... Hi, Scott. I think I'd put this up there with some of the best themes of all time, or at least put it high up there in the second tier of best themes. And I'd definitely put it on a list of the best themes of the 1980s, especially since the film scores of the latter part of the decade are not as prolific as those of the first half. Then again, many film soundtracks of the mid to late 80s were pop song heavy and not score heavy. Yeah, there were a few. The score from The Untouchables is, is one from right around this time that I think is worth a listen. But if you look at the top grossing films of 86 through 88, you got a lot of comedy, action, and drama that aren't on the scale of, say, Empire or Raiders or Jedi. And it's Danny Elfman's Batman score from 89 that I think was the next score that I remember being on the level of those, at least in terms of its influence and ability to, uh, to remember it. I didn't own many cassettes around this time. I think I still have my copy of Thriller. I definitely have my copy of Born in the USA. One point, I know that I own the soundtracks to Footloose over the top of the Karate Kid Part 2. But the Top Gun soundtrack got played over and over and over again, with the anthem being the closest I'd had to a track I'd put on repeat. Of course, it was a cassette, so it meant rewinding and playing. And we're going to rewind and play next time. I'll be back on March 10th. G.I. Joe number 60. Until then, leave some feedback on the uh, page. You can email me at popcultureaffidavid.com. Thanks for listening, and take care.